Well, I'm happy to say that our featured speaker has survived the trip from Milwaukee, which I understand was quite a hectic one this evening from the traffic and the uh, fog and the bad weather and the accident on I-95. <laughs> our speaker is one of the ex-sheriffs of the Westerners here in Chicago and uh, director of the Milwaukee <coughs> Historical Society. And this evening he'll address his remarks to us on the second front during the uh, Civil War, and that was the problem that we had to contend with, or the North had to contend with, uh, with the Indians that were constantly menacing the frontier. Mr. Harry Anderson. I can only apologize to you for my tardy appearance and offer you this be a bit of advice uh, when next time you hear Greyhound tell you, let us do, you, do the driving for you. Don't believe it. There was a rather nasty accident. We didn't even get to see it, but uh, I heard that uh, a tank truck turned over on I-94 somewhere between Racine and Kenosha, and we spent an hour and a half riding around the back roads trying to bypass it. So, uh, Pollution. Pollution, that's right. So, as Dan has indicated, uh, I'm going to try to touch on some aspects of the military campaigns of the United States government during the Civil War years. They weren't, these troopers, they weren't fighting Confederates, although it was rumored in the West that there were plenty of Confederates and Confederate influence in that area. Instead, they were fighting against the Sioux Indians. And before the war was, or the hostilities ended between the North and the South, the engagement which began in Minnesota, in the Minnesota River Valley in 1862, had spread westward as far as Wyoming, Montana, and it encompassed all of the tribes of the vast Teton Sioux Nation. I guess in the interest of time, I'm going to try to abbreviate uh, this a little bit and pick up the hostilities or not, not touch upon it so much uh, the outbreak in Minnesota. I think this is probably one of the aspects of the story that's, that's been fairly well recorded in published sources and rather deal with the things that took place after the outbreak in Minnesota in 1862, after the immediate hostilities had been put down. But in order to give you a little bit of perspective on this, I would like to just touch upon briefly, as far as they deal with my story, some of the principal personalities that deal in these campaigns. First of all, General John Pope, who is familiar to those of you that are interested in Second Bull Run and its aftermath. Pope, in September of 1862, was relieved by McClellan and assigned to command the Department of the Northwest, which had been hastily assembled with headquarters in St. Paul. On the basis of his performance in the West during this period, this was not simply the shelving of an incompetent battle, battlefield commander. On the whole, uh, whoever made the choice made a wise one, for Pope did a good job. He was an efficient administrator <coughs> in the area that he was dealing. He saw the in Indian wars on the Great Plains that he was responsible for controlling within the context of the Civil War itself. He held a regular army commission, which had given him uh, experience on the frontier before the war. He'd actually served in Minnesota after graduating from the Military Academy in 1842. And as a result, he had a knowledge of the West, of its people, and of its mental processes. When he appeared on the scene in September of 1862, following the outbreak of hostilities, he had no department, no staff, no supplies, and no equipment with which to carry out a war. He was able to wield what was available to him into a, an efficient fighting force that fall and in the years that followed, put together uh, what I consider to be a fairly effective operation uh, on the Northern Plains. His two principal field commanders, one was also an experienced Civil War officer, General Alfred Sully, 
who appears on the, our scene in June of 1863. He, like Pope, was a regular Army officer who had experience on the Northern Plains before the war. He had served in Minnesota and on the Upper Missouri in 55 and 56 during General Harney's campaign against the Sioux. He was a, a Western general in the best sense of the term, in that he knew and understood Indians and he could handle them. By large, throughout the, the period, he has the most difficult field command to, uh, to uh, command because primarily it was one of logistics. He was bound to the Missouri River uh, for his operations, and as a result, he had to depend on river transportation uh, to carry his supplies and equipment and personnel uh, against the Sioux. Yet, in spite of these, he fought or took the battle into Indian country in 63, 64, and 65 with considerable success, except in the latter year, uh, in 1865, when he was hampered by what I consider to be the ignorance of a commanding officer that replaced Pope as department commander. The other field commander that operated during this period was Henry H. Sibley, who was a veteran fur trader in the Minnesota country, having come there in the 1830s or early 40s. He held field command of Minnesota troops after the outbreak in 62 and again in 63. After that, he remained primarily in an administrative capacity. If one were to attempt to evaluate Sibley, uh, I think you'd have to recognize that he did not have a military background as such, and therefore uh, he doesn't compare as favorably as did Sully, for example. And I think probably another factor that comes out of this same background is that he was tied a little bit too closely okay. to Minnesota interests and associations, and he wasn't always able to uh, act objectively in terms of purely military matters. Well, against this background, then, the Army, or rather General Polk, formulated plans to move against the Sioux in what was now Dakota Territory. They had been chased out of Minnesota, and Little Crow and his band of renegades had escaped to the Missouri River, where they spent the winter, the other uh, Sioux tribes that had been involved in the fighting in 1862 was sort of the middle group, the Yankton-A, which uh, in a sense represented a transition between the eastern Santees, the, the farming Indians, the reservation Indians, and the far western Tetons, the Buffalo Indians. The Yanktonais and the Sistons and the Wapdens had been involved in some of the fighting in 1862, and as a result, they were looked upon by Pope as being hostile also. And so he formulated plans to send Sibley, Sibley overland up the Minnesota River and then <coughs> westward into eastern Dakota in pursuit of these Indians at the same time that Sully was to come up the Missouri from Sioux City, Iowa, and Yankton with a river force to hopefully catch uh, the Indians in a pincer movement. And this is very definitely a, an effort to coordinate uh, the movements of the two commands. It turns out rather disa disastrously in terms of coordination, but uh, this was one of the lessons that Pope and his two principal commanders had to learn. Sib Sibley did come overland with a force of about 1,400 infantry and 500 cavalry. He got into Dakota and had a number of skirmishes with the, with the Sioux in July, late in July, at Big Mound, at Buffalo Lake, and at Stony Lake. And uh, here he was running up against the very hostiles augmented by the, some of the Eastern Plains tribes that had been a party <coughs> to the Minnesota Uprising in 62. Uh, they were a rather substantial force. You have to take the military reports, perhaps with a grain of salt, but in the Battle of Buffalo Lake, for example, on July 22nd, uh, there was upwards of 2,000 warriors engaged in the uh, hostilities. They skirmished for, in this particular instance, for two <coughs> hours before the Indians broke off the engagement. This was a typical Indian fight, where they fought on the ground, selected by the by the Sioux, as opposed to some of the later engagements which Sully was involved in, in which he was able to get into the Indian village and able to do much more of an effective job of uh, crippling the force of the hostiles. After marching across eastern Dakota as far as the Missouri, Zip Sibley turned back and returned to uh, Minnesota. Most of the Tetons crossed across, uh, crossed uh, over to the west bank 
of the Missouri and went to the Black Hills. The Santees and the Yanktonays remained on the east side. And this is where they were later on in September, uh, early September, when Sully finally managed to come upriver. This was probably one of the uh, most severe years for drought and low water on the Missouri in the entire uh, two or three decades of the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. And his steamboats had a tremendous job in getting as far as Fort Sully, uh, what became Fort Sully near Pierce, South Dakota. On, uh, from that point, on the 31st of August, 1863, Sully took the field with a force of about 1,200 cavalry, mostly Nebraska and Iowa troops, plus a battery of four guns. His Indians, or his mixed blood scouts, captured one of the fugitives from Sibley's engagements, and as a result of this, learned of the hostilities that had already taken place. Late in the afternoon on September 3rd, a large Indian camp containing perhaps nine or 900 or 1,000 warriors was discovered by Sully's advance near what is called Whitestone Hills, about 12 miles west of Ellendale in Dickey County, North Dakota. Before darkness fell, a fight of about an hour's duration took place in which the Indians were driven from the field. Now this is a, an instance of the other type of engagement, uh, uh, not the same type of thing that Sibley was engaged in. Here Sully was able to get in close to the village, to where the women and children were, and force the warriors to fight the kind of engagement that uh, uh, they didn't want to become involved in. They took uh, very heavy ca casualties. The troops themselves suffered 22 killed and 50 wounded, and there were several hundred Indian bodies discovered on the field, as well as about 250 women and children taken prisoner as a result of this. After the fight at Whitestone Hills, Sully turned back, went back down to the Missouri to the pier area again, where he built the post that was initially named Fort Antietam and later uh, Old Fort Sully. And this ended the campaigns against the Sioux in uh, 1863. However, back in Milwaukee, and this is perhaps my interest in this whole operation, this uh, uh, Pope had shifted his headquarters from St. Paul to Milwaukee and was operating the Department of the Northwest from that <coughs> point. As early as September 23, 1863, before he had news of Sully's successes at Whitestone Hills, he was planning for a campaign the following year against the Tetons, west of the Missouri River, because on the basis of the information he got from Sibley and from some of Sully's early reports, it was very clear that these, the epitome of the, the Plains Indians, the Buffalo Indians, uh, were now involved in hostilities once again with the United States government for the first time seriously since General Harney's campaign against them in the summer of 1855. Sully was given overall command of the entire field operation for 1864. He was to bring his own troops, about 1,800 men, up the Missouri again from, from Sioux City. Uh, and near what later was to become Fort Rice, near the north, present North Dakota-South Dakota border, was to link up with a force coming overland from Minnesota again, although Sibley was not in command this time, of between 15 and 1,600 uh, men, mostly cavalry, with two sections of artillery. By July the 9th, the two commands had united and been ferried across the Missouri by Sully steamboats. They then began the immediate prospect of, uh, or immediate task of constructing a base of operations west of the Missouri, which was to become the uh, well-known Fort Rice, which was a basis for cavalry and, and other operations against the Sioux for a decade or two uh, following. On July 18th, Sully left Fort Rice with a field command of some 2,200 men, again mostly cavalry, to move out against the reported village of hostiles between 1,600 and 1,800 lodges, which might be 3,000 warriors, perhaps, at a con conservative estimate, that was supposedly located between the Hart River and the Missouri River in what is now western North Dakota. On the 23rd of July, he corralled his wagon train on the upper Hart River and under guard, left it there under guard, and set out in light marching order to strike the Indian camp five days later. The last two days of his march, he covered 80 miles. 
the place where the engagement took place, where the Indians were camped, was uh, is today known as Kildare Mountain, Takahukoti, if my Sioux is uh, correct, or the place where they killed the deer. <coughs> it was extremely broken ground, rough country. It was impossible for Sully's cavalry command to operate as cavalry, and as a result, they dismounted and fought primarily on foot, using their horses simply to maneuver from one place to another. But there was no mounted charges or close-in engagement uh, as far as the, the cavalry was concerned. One of the features of the engagement, however, was Sully's use of artillery, or rather his subordinates' use of, of artillery. Ca uh, Captain Nathaniel Pope, commanding the so-called Prairie Battery within his command, used uh, 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 the artillery to great effect, uh, not simply taking up a position and, and uh, fighting the Indians from a set position, but uh, uh, firing a few shots and then uh, link, hooking up his, his guns and, and chasing after him to another point on the field. And he was extremely active, and if his reports are to be accepted, uh, played considerable success in the eventual uh, results of the engagement. It lasted between six and seven hours, and again, darkness fell, fell before uh, the uh, fighting was broken off. The Indians crossed over the mountains or around the mountains and escaped to the north, and Sully's troops slept on the battlefield that night. According to his reports, 150 uh, Indians were killed, while his own casualties were much lighter. He then proceeded through the badlands of North Dakota. This is where he made his famous statement that that area was hell with the fires out, crossed to uh, the Yellowstone, and then proceeded eastward back down the Missouri River to his base of operations at Fort Rice. While these events were taking place in northern Dakota, other incidents which were a part of the story were also occurring down on the Overland Trail, the Platte, Platte River Valley, which also play a major role in this entire story. At the time war broke out, there had been small garrisons at uh, Fort Kearney and Fort Laramie of regular troops. Uh, as a result of the war, these garrisons were replaced by volunteers from the east. And at the same time, but the, as a result of the Minnesota outbreak in 1862, nearly all of the Indians on the northern plains were regarded with intense suspicion. The frontier was in uh, panic, literally. Uh, in the fall of 1862, and this extended not only in Minnesota, where it was most logical, logical, but down into the Platte River Valley in southern Nebraska as well. And uh, while I won't go into details, this, this plays an attitude, uh, a, uh, a role in developing an attitude or a state of mentality among these eastern troops that were garrisoned these posts. Actual hostilities break out in the spring of 1864. Uh, Father Powell's Cheyennes are involved down in Colorado. Uh, there are reports of cattle stealing. Uh, some Colorado volunteer cavalry are sent in pursuit. And as a result, there's a whole series of raids, skirmishes, and fights <coughs> during the spring and summer of 1864 along the Platte and the South Platte as far as uh, almost to Denver. The Indians were stirred up. This is the result of this series of incidents. And uh, there's a great deal of, of uh, hostile, hostile sentiment among the tribes on the Southern Plains. At the same time, some branches of the government, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in particular, were trying to uh, conduct negotiations with some of the tribes. And this was also a, uh, a factor of importance to some of the local politicians, particularly those in Colorado who were anxious to secure uh, a treaty with the Southern Cheyennes to, uh, to uh, produce a, a session of land so that the development of the Colorado region could progress uh, uh, much more rapidly. As a result, you have among the Southern tribes uh, a war faction and a peace faction. And one of the more peacefully inclined chiefs uh, who had actually been in the talk with the government authorities was Black Kettle, who late in November was uh, 1864 was camped uh, with a large band, a large portion of the Southern Cheyenne tribe at Sand Creek. And this is where uh, Colonel John Shivington 
and at the, at the head of a, not his own regiment, the 1st Colorado, but the 3rd Colorado Volunteer Cavalry, 100-day recruited uh, recruits out of the mining camps of Colorado. This is where Chevington comes down and, and, and attacks the hostile camp or the Indian camp because it included the friendlies as well as some of the hostiles. And you have the, the uh, I think, rather appropriately named Chevington Massacre. The, the result of this, in addition to the tragedy it produced, was that the Cheyennes sent the war pipe around on the southern plains. They sent it to the Arapaho camps and to the southern Sioux camps. And uh, the Arapaho and the Sioux smoked the, the pipe. And as a result, they all went to war. In, 18, in January 1865, there was a great raid on Julesburg, which was a key supply depot and uh, outfitting point near the junction of the North and so South Platte. The troops were driven into a nearby military post, uh, not without substantial casualties, and the Indians sacked the, uh, the community of Julesburg and the great trading warehouses that were located there. This was repeated about a month later, and these same Indians then, in the late winter of 1865, moved across the Platte and uh, uh, through the Nebraska sand hills cross White River into what is now South Dakota and eventually link up with the northern hostiles that Sully had been fighting, uh, the northern Tetons that Sully had been fighting during the summer of 1865, or summer of 1864, excuse me. The result of this whole thing is that you have a great mass of hostile Indians, probably uh, I would guess even a larger group than was assembled at the time of the Custer fight on the Little Bighorn in 1876, located for between the Black Hills and uh, the Powder River country of Montana and Wyoming. And this then is the objective of the military campaigns that are formulated in the Department of the Northwest, the Department of Platte, during the winter of 1864-65. However, other developments had taken place which had a profound effect upon the 1865 campaign. <coughs> Most important of all is that late in November, Pope is ordered east to Virginia to meet with General Grant. And as a result, a new department or a division is created in the West, the military division of the Missouri, which Pope is given command. Included in this division are the old departments of the Northwest, Kansas and Missouri. Kansas and Missouri are, uh, are combined and placed under the uh, command of, of uh, General Grenville Dodge. And General Samuel Ryan Curtis, who formerly had commanded the Department of Missouri, is sent to replace Pope in command of the Department of Northwest. Now, Pope, uh, Curtis is a rather interesting uh, figure. Uh, earlier in the war, he was engaged in uh, reportedly in cotton speculation in Arkansas in 62 or 63. He was a political general of the first order from Iowa. He had considerable military background. He was a graduate of the academy. He had served in the Mexican War. But when he was removed from command in Missouri or in the Department of Missouri in 64 by Grant, it was for, uh, among other things, inefficiency. And uh, he had some experience in Indian matters in Kansas. This had been a part of his earlier uh, responsibilities. And one of the, uh, uh, I think, one of the things that uh, perhaps you can get a uh, feeling for his ability to command an Indian country was the fact that he was the officer who ordered Carrington to take the field against the Cheyennes in 1864. Now, the purpose of the 65 command, uh, the 65 campaign, was laid out at a meeting in March 1865 between Sully, Pope, and Dodge, where they met in St. Louis. Sully was again, according to the plans that were formulated in the spring of that year, to proceed up the Missouri and then move westward to the Black Hills, where the, uh, the generals were pretty sure he would find the Tetons that he was after. Uh, a new commander was brought eastward from Utah, General Patrick Connor, a Californian who had spent the early years of the war fighting Indians in Utah <laughs> and also sending back alarming reports on the activities of Brigham Young and his Mormons as uh, with regard to uh, the Union cause. And Connor was to organize and direct a movement from the Platte River country north to the Black Hills and the Powder River country against these same Indians. 
On paper, the whole thing looked promising. Sully was to move up the Missouri and then turn westward to the hills. Connor would develop three columns coming from the Platte northward, one east of the Black Hills, one west of the Black Hills, and one under his immediate personal command northward into the Powder River country. However, as promising as it may have looked on paper, the results were disastrous. To begin with, the first reason was the cancellation of Sully's original operation. Early in May, a small party of, of hostile mixed bloods from the Minnesota <coughs> renegade tribes that were spending the winter up around Devil's Lake in North Dakota began raiding down into the Blue Earth Valley of Minnesota. <coughs> there were only about a dozen of them, but they created uh, literally panic in the Minnesota settlements. On May the 5th, when one of their party, a half-breed, was caught and hung, he told his captives before they lynched him that uh, there were a great many war parties that were coming down from Devil's Lake, from the hostels that were camped there, and were going to raid throughout Minnesota. As it turns out, this was all a fiction. Uh, uh, he was getting revenge on his captives uh, even long after they had uh, done away with him. But uh, as a result, when these reports went to Sibley's headquarters in St. Paul. The next two or three weeks were <coughs> highlighted by a steady stream of reports, letters, and pleas going from Sibley to Sam Curtis in Milwaukee. And uh, Curtis also was alarmed sufficiently by the situation that he took a, a trip up to St. Paul himself. Uh, the purport of this whole thing was that Sibley didn't have enough troops in Minnesota to do more than uh, garrison his own uh, outposts and, and, and stations in the state, and that the settlements in Minnesota and in northern Iowa, and again, this was uh, uh, Curtis's home state, and I think Sibley uh, touched a nerve when he, when he mentioned this, that they were in great danger of these raiding parties, although in the whole history of the Minnesota outbreak, there weren't any uh, Sioux that ever got <coughs> down into the settlements in Iowa. And it was Sibley who suggested first that Sully's force should be redirected from the Black Hills, instead moving northward up the Missouri to the Devil's Lake country. This Curtis all passed along with his approval to Pope, and uh, finally, by late in March, Pope orders Sully to suspend his movement to the Black Hills and to go uh, to Devil's Lake instead. This upset Sully a great deal. Uh, he, as I say, was, was sensitive to the true currents and, and attitudes of the Indians, and as well as their locations and movements. And he knew the whole thing was a big myth. But the uh, orders were orders, as he said himself, and he finally <coughs> had to obey. Without belaboring the point, Sully marched all around the region east of the Missouri River during the summer of 1865. He went to Devil's Lake, he came back to the Missouri River, and he found no Indians whatsoever, not even fresh Indian signs. The only thing interesting he did come across was a big party of Red River half-breeds from Pembinaw who had come down into northern Dakota, complete with a French nobleman and their own priest. I think the whole thing is a key to the outcome of the 1865 campaign, because Sibley and Curtis were particularly responsible for the creation of this situation, and perhaps also <coughs> Pope has to assume some of the blame as well. But in defense of Pope, I think he, it can be said that he felt that the Connor Dodge forces that were moving northward from the Platte would be sufficient to handle the hostiles in, in the Black Hills Powder River country without Sully's force. Uh, as it turned out, this was an incorrect assumption. The Powder River Campaign of 1865 was, as I've indicated earlier, a three-pronged offensive moving up from the Platte River Valley. The eastern wing was commanded by Colonel Nelson Cole of uh, the 2nd Missouri Light Artillery with two regiments, one his own, uh, disarmed, uh, that is, relieved of their artillery and mounted as cavalry, and also the 12th Missouri Cavalry. The center column, which was to move up from Fort Laramie on the west side of the Black Hills was the 16th Kansas Volunteers under Lieutenant Colonel Walker. And then the western wing was under Connor's immediate command, and that was headed for the Powder River, Tongue River country, a mixed force, including some of the eastern units that had been wet, sent west to fight Indians after Appomattox. Very little reliable information has been assembled about this whole 
conflict uh, in the Powder River country during 1865. A few books have been published on it, but by and large, most of the source material that helps you explain it is still locked away in diaries and newspapers. The material that I've been able to assemble on it includes both uh, a source material from both of these sources, uh, the diary, one, at least one good diary, and uh, a number of very informative newspaper accounts. And as you read it, you get the impression as, as coal is moving from uh, Omaha up the Platte and then up the Loop River and through the sand hills that the entire regiment or the entire two regiments of Missouri troops are constantly looking, looking over their shoulder, hoping that orders are going to come uh, for them to return back to Omaha and proceed to St. Louis for mustering out. After all, they had been enlisted to fight in the Civil War, and they no, wanted no part of this uh, uh, Indian campaign. Unfortunately for them, they ne the orders never come. They get to the Black Hills, and they proceed northward around the hills, and finally, uh, late in August, they link up with Walker's command coming from the west side of the hills, and the two of them move into the Powder River Valley of eastern Montana around the 1st of September, and this is where they find the Indians, just where Sully said they would be, and uh, where the original plans for the campaign had indicated. The first fight takes place on the 1st of September and continues for a week after that. The condition of, of the combined uh, coal walker command was a serious one. Their supplies were low, their forage was gone, the animals were giving out, and the men were sick from uh, dysentery and fever. On the 2nd of September, they begin burning their wagons and abandoning stock. The, pr the, the plan of this whole thing was that the three wings of, of the Platte River campaign were to link up that Connor was supposed to show up someplace after building a, a supply post uh, uh, on the lower, on the upper tongue and uh, command, give direct command to the operation uh, from there. This, however, never happens. Connor gets mixed up with some Arapahoes uh, near uh, what is now Sheridan, Wyoming, and scores the only success of the campaign. But he never gets up into the Platte River country where the, these two other poor fellows are, are leading their uh, uh, troops around in, in uh, rather pitiful condition. On the 4th of September, they have a uh, skirmish with the hostiles. On the 5th they, and the 7th, they have two very major engagements, followed by another series uh, of, of uh, all-day skirmishes on the 8th. And, uh, they come out on the short end of the operation. The party, as I've indicated, they that they run into, the, the hostile camp, was perhaps one of the biggest that was ever assembled on the Northern Plains. And I think it compares, as I've said, very favorably with the one that Custer ran into at the Little Bighorn in June 1876. The Sioux, by this time, that is the Tetons, uh, uh, with their northern and southern Cheyenne allies, and this is the first time that the southern Cheyennes have been up north fighting in, in many years, are uh, just too much for these uh, volunteers from Kansas and Missouri. The weather also was against them. On the night of September 9th and 10th, they had a severe hail and freezing rainstorm in which uh, 600 head of stock, or after which 600 head of stock had to be shot or abandoned. 110 wagons, of the 110 wagons that then remained in this command, all but 14 of them were burned or destroyed the next morning. The sh the troops were without boots or shoes, their clothes was in ra were in rags, they had no food, and they were eating horses and mules. To give you an idea, I'll just quote very briefly a couple of excerpts in, from one of the diaries of, of these <coughs> troopers. On the 15th of, of September, this fellow writes, a great many sick, sick and disabled, many barefoot and almost naked, no means of transportation, all stock all played out, killing horses and mules and eating one <coughs> rotten hard tack a day, no coffee, little tea, no sugar. Finally, on the 14th of September, uh, September uh, Connor's uh, Pawnee scouts uh, discover the command and uh, the uh, supply train is sent to their <coughs> assistance and on the 18th of September they reach his supply depot at uh, what was later called uh, 
Camp Reno or Fort Reno, and on the 24th, they're ordered down to Fort Laramie for muster out and discharge. Before leaving, Private Hiram Baker of Battery K, the 2nd Missouri Light Artillery, had this to say about uh, his experiences. We're leaving the Powder River, and truly speaking, it should be left to the to the moles and bats or savages and wild beasts as a howling wilderness not worth the attention of civilization. The Missouri troops, particularly Walker's men were, uh, or Cole's men were, terribly bitter against Connors for what they, uh, what they considered to be his failure to carry out the original plans and link up with them. There's a tremendous dispute that's carried on between the two commanders over where Cole exactly went. Did he ever get where his orders were and from the opposite point of view, did Connor ever send out the scouting parties that were supposed to affect the link-up between the two commands? Uh, Connor sort of puts icing on the cake as far as the dispute is concerned when he tells Cole that he never saw any Missouri troops that were worth a damn anyway, and this is all they had to hear, and uh, they went back <coughs> in a high state of dudgeon. The expedition against the Sioux in 65 was all but a total failure. Uh, one can only speculate what it would have been the results had Sully been allowed to come west from the Missouri uh, with his veteran troops. These are the same uh, men, the regiments from Nebraska and Iowa that he had under his command in 63 and 64, and probably the results would have been somewhat different. I think probably this is the proper place to close this story of the Sioux campaigns during the Civil uh, War years for two reasons. Chronologically, at least, it's the end of the 65 is the end of the, uh, the Civil War, and, and more particularly, the last time that Civil War troops, that as volunteers, were used to fight the Sioux. And secondly, the Sioux hostilities had now encompassed all the tribes, from the Minnesota Santees of the 62 outbreak to the Wild Tetons by 65. And as I said before, these were the real hostiles, the Buffalo Indians, the non-treaty Indians, that were to remain a problem for the United States government for a decade more until they were finally crushed during the campaigns of 1876-77. But that's the story of another Sioux war in which... Uh, which is filled with many of the personalities of, the, of the, uh, the war between the states of a decade earlier. Custer, Crook, Alfred Terry, Nelson Miles, Wesley Merritt, Eugene Carr, Gibbon, McKenzie, all played the role as senior commanders during the hostilities of, of 1866 or 76. But before closing, I think I'd like to draw some conclusions about the events which I've tried to describe under these rather hectic conditions here tonight. Uh, the impact, if any, or what impact, if any, did it have on the Civil War itself? That is, these campaigns in the Northwest, uh, and particularly the Northern War effort. I think statistically, you can say that it had very little in 1860-61, before hostilities between the North and the <coughs> South broke out, the regular army had garrisons totaling almost a thousand men between Fort Snelling, Minnesota, and Fort Randall on the Missouri. At the high point of the campaigns in Dakota and uh, Minnesota, there is no more than 3,500 troops actually campaigning in the field. So that, uh, uh, as a result of this hostilities, the increase in in uh, in uh, strength required to, to garrison uh, the posts in Sioux country increased, what, by uh, 2,500 perhaps, at the 3,000 at the most. Uh, I, I think we can conclude that uh, there was no serious drain on the Northern War effort as a result of these campaigns. In addition, the war didn't occur in a vacuum. That is, there was no stopping of the westward movement uh, during the years 1861 to 65. Certainly the Overland Trail became far more important than it had been previous uh, through the efforts to keep California and the Far West linked to the Union. And certainly government policy during the, these years focused attention on the West and upon the settlement of the West and the uh, almost natural hostilities that would occur with the native Indians as a result of this settlement. And here I'm referring to things like the creation of new territories, the actual territorial organization, for example, of Dakota 
1861 in Colorado the same year. A plank in the Republican platform that had Lincoln had been elected on in 1860 was the Homestead Act, which was eventually passed in 1862 and did much to stimulate the westward movement even during the Civil War period. So what I'm saying is here now is that you can't simply slice off this time period and say, look, this is what was there before, this is what was here in 65, and there's been a change because the conditions that required military occupation of the Northern Plains during this period were also <laughs> changing. I think as far as the military frontier in Sioux country is concerned, and here again I'm referring to the campaigns that take place within the decade that follows, uh, we begin to see certain patterns at least that emerge uh, and certain relationships that are developed during <coughs> the campaigns of the early 60s and the campaigns of the mid 70s. Uh, one result of course is the attitude of the Indians themselves. Uh, the failure of the particularly the 65 campaign against the Tetons all but negated the uh, impact of General Harney's campaign of 1855. And here is probably uh, the most severe <coughs> punishment that these Plains tribes, these particular Sioux, had ever received at the hands of the United States government when Harney went out in, in, uh, in 55 and, and literally put the fear of God into these wild Indians. I've never read anything like the accounts of the, of the treaty councils that this fellow had with, uh, with the Sioux at Fort Pier in the spring of 56. They literally begged him to leave them alone, and they, they would do anything to promise to keep the peace. And they did keep the peace until the, uh, the Civil War years. But as a result of the failure of the 65 campaign, the hostiles were <coughs> a, a very aggressive move. They had no respect for the ability, the fighting ability of the uh, of the army and they could make no distinction between the Civil War volunteers from Missouri and the regular army that would come out and replace them. And I think some examples of this is certainly the, the, uh, the Fetterman uh, disaster in December of 1866 and the uh, eventual uh, capitulation to the Sioux demands for the abandonment of the Powder River country or the Powder River Bozeman Trail forts in the Treaty of 1868. At the same time, the Civil War campaigns established a network of posts along the Missouri, particularly uh, Fort Sully, Fort Rice, Fort uh, Buford, up at the conflux of the Missouri and the Yellowstone, which were bases for operations against these same Indians in the 70s. <coughs> the same is true of the trails, the, uh, the routes that the troops took in the later years. Sully's route of 64 up the Hart River and across to the Yellowstone was used in the 70s, including a portion of it by Terry and Custer in 76. Finally, we have previews of some of the events which are going to take place and which unfortunately not all the commanders of the 70s took note of. Uh, Sully, for example, made good use of his Indian allies from among the warring tribes. And here he, he did something that uh, uh, was a little bit different, which George Crook used to great effect both in Arizona and on the Northern Plains. He didn't get his Indian auxiliaries from the tribes who were enemy, enemies of the Sioux, for example, but whenever he licked or was sufficiently able to over, overawe some of the Sioux bands, he would incorporate them within his scouts and auxiliary force, and they would wind up fighting their own people. And this had a tremendous impact upon the Indian psychology. And Sully begins doing this in, uh, in the, his 1860s cam uh, campaigns of 1860. Unfortunately, except for Crook, the army didn't utilize this technique, uh, I feel, with as great effectiveness as they could have based upon the lessons of, the, of this period. I think uh, if, if they could have learned anything from these operations, it would have been the difficulty of combined operations uh, on the Northern Plains. It was almost impossible and yet they still try to do it later to effectively coordinate large, the operations of large commands in the Great West uh, because of communications and logistics and what have you. And this also pointed up uh, the need for mobility uh, against the, the Plains Indians. Uh, even Sully was tied to his 
wagon train for the most part during his campaigns. And it isn't again until Crook comes into the Northern Plains with his pack trains, his trains of pack mules that he brought with him from Arizona, that you begin to see the Army having the mobility that was sufficient to follow these Indians 12 months out of the year and give them a licking in the wintertime to get into the villages when it had uh, its greatest impact and greatest meaning. So in conclusion, I think we can say that the record of Billy Yank as an Indian fighter was a mixed one. I think as the troops go, the volunteers, when they were properly led by uh, experienced officers, particularly the regulars such as Sully, they did a good job. When they were left to their own, their own devices, the results were not so good, particularly <coughs> when they were subject to some of the overall direction of, of people like uh, Samuel Ryan Curtis. And I think in the final analysis, the Civil War probably had a greater impact upon events and the development in Sioux country between 62 and 65 than the Indian hostilities had upon the military struggle between the Union and the Confederacy. However, they were all a part of the overall Civil War story, and I trust that you found them of some interest. Thank you. Very much, Harry. We enjoyed the talk very much. Uh, as is our custom, do we have any questions from the floor? All right, let's start out with Jerry. Well, the obvious question on my mind is uh, why was there any Confederate influence on the Indians? And if not, why? <coughs> because it seems like this would have been a heck of a way to divert a lot of troops away from the, uh, from the Eastern and uh, Western campaigns. The area, the area geographically that I've covered is probably the most remote in the Great Plains area from the, the potential of Confederate influence. And, and I've never seen any evidence, any actual reliable evidence, excuse me, that the Confederates were in any way messing around with the Indians <coughs> on the Northern Plains. There was plenty of rumor throughout the war. And uh, this probably had just as great an impact as had they actually tried to do something. I think that the Sioux, at least, and Sioux country was a little bit remote from the Confederacy to do anything effective. In the Southern Plains, uh, I know in, uh, it was the summer of 64 uh, in Colorado. Uh, one of the reasons why, but one of, another one of Curtis's uh, uh, mistakes, as I view them, was he, he picked up a rumor of a Confederate movement against the Arkansas River posts, and he immediately uh, stripped the Overland route of all the troops that he was able to move down into the Arkansas, and this set the stage for some of the hostilities along the Platte River route and some of the Indian successes. A secondary question on this. Then, of your knowledge of the Indians, do you think the Confederates could have uh, made any inroads or, or influence in some way? If they had wanted to. I don't know. Uh, I suppose if they could have gotten arms and ammunition, this would, I, ideologically, I don't, I don't think they could have had any impact. Uh, uh, this simply meant nothing to the Sioux. I think probably during this whole period, up until uh, the, the capitulation of Sitting Bull in the 1880s, the people who caused the most trouble on the north were the, were the Canadians, the Red River half-breeds and, and, uh, and uh, that like. But uh, as far as the Confederates were concerned, unless they could get guns and ammunition, these the, the Sioux would take from anybody. But uh, uh, anything else, I, I don't think so. When the uh, Indians started raiding up in Minnesota, <coughs> folk put in a call for help. At Camp Douglas in Chicago at that time, there were about 14 or 1,500 paroled federal men. They were holding them there. These boys were getting kind of impatient and so on. And these were the guys that they could ship to Pope and did. These men could not have gone back to the Civil War party because if they had violated their parole, they would have been shot. <coughs> of these men, most of them probably were not cavalrymen, were they? No, I what think there was there was there was talk of sending these uh, these parolees to to uh, to Sully, but Sully never got them. They were sent up to Minnesota. Those of them that did get there and garrisoned the posts while the troops went out into the field. The people who did did get here from Chicago or from the Illinois area were the so-called galvanized Yankees, the the captured rebels that were given the choice of spending the rest of the war in the. Uh, 
in the prison camps or, or going out and fight. And these did go up to the upper Missouri in, in six, late 64 <coughs> and throughout 65. And they were at Fort Rice, and they were at Fort Berthel, and they were at Fort Union, way up the, uh, the Missouri. And these poor devils really suffered. You also mentioned, touched on the Colorado part of it. What do you know or what can you tell us about Colonel Thomas Moonlight, who was in command at Denver? Do you know that man? Yes. Uh, Thomas Moonlight, uh, well, he, he's a rather uh, controversial. He later becomes very important politically, and people are sensitive about him. Moonlight uh, was, I would, to put it bluntly, another incompetent. Uh, he, uh, for example, uh, after he leaves Denver, he's, he's sent to command at Fort Laramie, and uh, uh, at the time the, the great raids at Julesburg are taking place, and later on in, the, in early 65, a bunch of Indians, friendlies, are being moved from Fort Laramie downriver, and uh, they, are, they break out, they kill some of the troops that are escorting them, and they head up to into the Niobrara River country of northwestern uh, Nebraska, and Moonlight chases them. And uh, he has three or four companies of, of uh, some of Connor's California troops. And they get up near uh, the Niobrara Valley, and they go into camp. And the California troops want to picket their horses close in. And Moonlight says, no, send them up to graze on the hillside. As soon as they do this, the Sioux come down, run off all his horses, and he and the rest of the cavalry have to hot-foot it back to, uh, to Fort Laramie on foot. And he's eventually kicked out of the army. He's <coughs> incompetent. Wasn't Carson one of the scouts? I don't know that Kit Carson got this far north during the Civil War. I had always heard that he operated down in, in, in uh, New Mexico. Uh, where he, time, uh, I think he was where the moonlight. I, I couldn't say. Uh, he was in sure. New Mexico. Yeah, this has always been my feeling. 64, 65. Elmer? Uh, in uh, this diary of uh, Captain Ware, I think there was Mike Walton uh, in the back book. I'm not familiar with that, but I know that, uh, and whether Gene Ware refers to it or not, uh, one, there are, were Confederates, uh, I, I want to qualify my statement, at least one and possibly two, and I'm thinking father of the Bent Boys. Uh, two of uh, William Bent's sons had served in the Confederate Army early in the war and had been captured and were paroled. And they were with the, the Cheyennes. They were at, one of them was at Sand Creek. And they were with the Cheyennes when they moved north and raided Julesburg and went up into the Powder River country in 64 and 65. These are the only uh, Confederate, uh, actual former Confederate soldiers that I know of that were with the hostiles. And these were, they were more uh, mixed blood Indians than they were Confederates. Uh, how did General Mitchell's group and his operation uh, tie in with the rest of the... <coughs> well, Mitchell had command of the department's in Nebraska that were responsible for, and I, I skipped over this rather hastily in the interest of time, but each one of the Overland stage stops about 15 miles apart from Omaha to Fort Laramie <coughs> and westward had an actual garrison of, of volunteer troops, and Mitchell had command of a great segment of the Overland Trail, and it, it was his problem to uh, keep these garrisoned and, and to uh, try to fight off the raiding parties of, of Sioux upon the stage stations and upon the telegraph lines and so on. Uh, it was a pretty difficult task, and I don't think he did a very good job of it. But uh, I think conditions uh, mitigated against doing a good job. Well, wasn't this problem between the Pawnees and the Sioux? Well, no, it, this was a, uh, a hereditary enmity between the Pawnees and the Sioux. They, they fought. Uh, back in the 1830s and the 1820s, and they fought as late as the 1870s. They were always fighting, and, and this was something that went on whether the war was going on, whether the troops were there or not. Mark? Uh, I hear very little about the uh, presidential influence on, the, uh, on these operations. Uh, what was the function of the president? Did he just turn this whole matter over to the decision of the uh, military department? Uh, they operate independently uh, without any uh, uh, blanket instruction uh, from the president or what? I think uh, in, in terms of actual military operation, Pope had a pretty free hand, except uh, as he had to meet the demands uh, from, uh, from Halleck for troops 
from Minnesota primarily to go east and fight in the east or down in the uh, along the Mississippi. The only Two instances, and you know, there's only actually one that you can document that, that Lincoln seems to play a role in this, is in the fall or the winter, December of 1862, after the Minnesota Uprising, Sibley had captured a great many of the Indians that had participated in the, in the raids and the massacres and everything else in the lower Minnesota River Valley. He appoints a commission. <coughs> to try all of the male Sioux prisoners that he has in their hands. And the theory that they operated on was all the Indians were guilty unless they could prove themselves innocent. And they ran, they ran, they literally ran these people before the commission, as many as 40 in one day had trials before the commission. The result is that by early December, the commission had sentenced 303 of these Santee Sioux to be hung at Mankato. And they took them uh, from camp release, where the trials were held, down through New Elm, where, uh, as Sibley put it, the Dutch she-devils that lived in New Elm attacked the, the prisoners as they were in the, in the wagons, and they, they severely injured a number of them and a number of the guards. They brought them down <coughs> to the lower Minnesota River Valley. And this is where Lincoln intervenes. He orders Polk to send the trial records to Washington for review. And as a result of Lincoln's intercession, I think there was only 26 of the, the prisoners who were actually hung on December the 26th, 1862, as opposed to the, uh, to the 303 that had originally been sentenced to death. Now the other, uh, and this again is, is in purely in the realm of speculation, but one of the problems that, that Pope, to some degree, but more particularly Sully, had to contend with in Dakota during the campaigns were the efforts of the local politicians to control the supply contracts. And the fellow who was uh, primarily, or well, there were two of them, one was Walla Burley, who was the agent for the, uh, uh, the Yanktons, and the other was Newton Edmonds, who was a, uh, a brother to uh, and Edmonds from Michigan who had a high uh, role in government. And these two fellows were, well, I wouldn't say they were crooked, but uh, literally, during this period, the business of the frontier, the, the biggest business on the frontier was government. You got as much government contracts or as many government contracts and as many government officers as you could lay your hands on because this was cash money that was coming in. And Sully didn't go for this kind of thing. And as a result, there's a great deal of, of uh, uh, political effort made to remove him from command. In fact, Burley gets elected delegate to Congress from Dakota, and there, there is evidence uh, by, uh, uh, by early 65, for example, Sherman sends a letter to Pope saying that, uh, uh, who do you want to uh, replace uh, Sully uh, in command on the Northern Plains? And Pope says, why? He writes back, why? And, uh, and Sherman says, because we're getting all these reports in Washington that, uh, that he's incompetent. And uh, Pope then says uh, no, and he explains the whole thing to Sherman. But uh, what I'm suggesting here is that Lincoln probably sat on, on Wall of Burley and some of these other uh, uh, political manipulators from Dakota and uh, kept or backed Pope at least in, in 63 and 64 as far as, as Sully was concerned. But beyond that, I know of nothing uh, by which the president directly intervened in these operations. Would you say that Grant's administration can be credited then finally bringing the whole Indian problem to a culmination? <laughs> Grant, uh, <coughs> I don't know that Grant had much to say about it, uh, except that he's got to take responsibility for uh, moving uh, Pope out of Milwaukee down to St. Louis and then and bringing uh, Sam Curtis uh, up to command in the Department of the Northwest. But uh, I don't know that, well, Grant, he was primarily concerned with affairs in Virginia, and I don't think he paid too much attention to what was going on. Halleck, and Pope were, as, as I read the dispatches, close friends, and, and it was Halleck that, that Pope dealt with uh, during most of this time, anyway. Yes, sir. Two questions. Yeah. Where were the soldiers fed without the horse on <coughs> And why were the, uh, why was the Canadian influence, uh, why were the Canadians somewhat against the United States forces? Why, why, would, uh, why were the uh, Indians allowed a sanctuary? Well, to, answer your, to try and answer your first question, I think that uh, probably the uh, uh, 
the reason that artillery was effective uh, in the hands of competent uh, personnel, as, as I've cited the, this Captain Pope at Kilder Mountain, uh, was that it gave the, the military firepower that the Indians couldn't cope with. In other words, uh, it was a, a basic tactic of, of the Plains <coughs> tribes never to come into close quarters with, with troops uh, if you could help it, or unless the situation dictated that there was a chance of taking small casualties and scoring an overwhelming success. They'd come in and, and dart out and raid and skirmish and so on. What you could do with artillery is stay behind a skirmish line and shell bunches of Indians that were mounted up on the hills, and this created a, a, a panic effect. I think uh, the, the exploding shells uh, rather than the solid shot was what had the influence. Now, as far as the second question is concerned, I think uh, I don't know the answer, uh, but one of the things that appears throughout the history <coughs> of, the, of the Sioux tribes and uh, primarily the, the Teton Sioux that I'm most familiar with is that the British, the Redcoats, had a, a strange psychological hold over these Indians. I think it dates back to the era of the War of 1812 when Colonel Robert Dixon was, uh, was a Canadian uh, Western Indian superintendent, and he actually recruited some of the, the Plains tribes and many of the, uh, of the uh, Minnesota Sioux to fight uh, on the British side during the war. And uh, the Indian agents in the, certainly as late as the 30s and 40s, uh, in the 40s it's more isolated, but in the 30s, uh, are constantly referring in their reports, reports to uh, seizing from these Sioux British medals and British red coats and, and British flags and, and, and this sort of thing. And uh, 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 it was sanctuary, as if diplomatically, in the later years, in the 70s. Uh, this is where the Sioux went after uh, the winter of 76. They went across the border, <coughs> and, and Nelson Miles had a fit because he couldn't cross the border after them, like Mackenzie had done again in the Southwest, he had gone into Mexico. The British government wouldn't permit this, and so they had sanctuary. And then probably the other factor were these Red River half-breeds from Pembinaw that would come down into Dakota and, uh, and trade uh, uh, rifles and ammunition and whiskey and everything else all during the 50s and 60s, and particularly even during the hostilities in the, in the 70s, they were running guns to the Sioux. So this was part of the story. Marshall? How well armed were the Sioux during the Civil War? I would say uh, with firearms pretty poorly. I think this is one of the things throughout the whole period of the, the Sioux Wars in the 60s and the 70s <coughs> has been greatly overemphasized. I don't think they had near the weapons that people thought they had. Uh, certainly they didn't have breech loaders. What they had were maybe old trade guns and muzzle loaders and this sort of thing. But by comparison with the, tr with the troops, they were very poorly armed. Mr. Fleming. Yes, by the late stages uh, of the of the war, uh, Cole's troops in the Powder River campaign of '65 had Spencer seven-shot repeaters, and this is probably one of the things that got them out alive. Otherwise, it would have been even more disastrous. Than George. Uh, I want to go back to Canadian business. By the 70s, at least, the only problem Canadian government is half The real thing. They wouldn't listen to the Canadian government in the handcraft. No. Well, this is true. And I've got a, just a, a minor thing. Is the Nathaniel Pope related to the judge? I don't know. I Pope's father, unless I'm mistaken, was the Illinois politician uh, judge who was Nathaniel Pope. Uh, Otherwise, could, I wouldn't have made it. But the, the could very well be. Uh, <coughs> I don't know. Jerry? I have a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> this thing about the artillery, uh, was there any instance in the Western campaign, the Indian campaign, where the Indians themselves made any attempt to capture artillery and use it? I've never heard of it, no. I've never heard of it. I don't think they know what to do with it. Uh, they did capture it, but... Uh, Except the fact that uh, some Indians would have been... They couldn't have all been stupid. They no, I don't think it was, was a matter of stupid. <laughs> it was a matter of lacking technical knowledge. Uh, but I've never, I've seen Holly in Hollywood where they get Geronimo had a Gatling gun one time. But that's about. <laughs> no, I've never seen any evidence of this. No. Uh, during the New Mexico campaign, there 
first call, you were talking about Cook, and you were saying that one of the problems of the suit campaign was the communication problem. I, I understood that Cook used the heliograph down there for their communication. Was that ever used in the suit campaign, or was that something that was developed later? This was later, yes. Was the, later yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, by and large, they were campaigning on the plains, and there just wasn't the high ground uh, to make use of this if they had them available. I'm a little vague. Yeah, I, I've never seen any reference to it, and I doubt whether topographically the country was suited to that sort of thing. We have time for light signals and that sort of thing. He didn't use lights, but I don't think they were ever flashed lights. Doug, go ahead. You mentioned that there was no. Uh, working order between the Confederates and the Sioux. But isn't it true that down in the New Mexico area when they were trying to bring gold through that the Confederates were working <coughs> at least supplying the, uh, the Indians down there with the rifles and like that? It could very well be. I know practically nothing about New Mexico. I know that the Sioux never got to New Mexico and so this artificial boundary is also the limit of my knowledge. I, I don't know. I would imagine it seems Logical to me, but uh, I, I'm not qualified to comment. That's uh, where's Devil Lake located? Devil's Lake is up in northeastern North Dakota. It's about, uh, I guess it would be directly west of Grand Forks. Uh, but in the northwest, between Grand Forks and Pembina, but west of the, of the Minnesota line. They're in North Dakota, yes. Right. Uh, Mr. Anderson, in summarizing, it's about the time you should summarize anyway, wouldn't you say that our country's role in the Indian Wars is a very sorry spectacle? You mentioned artillery fighting defenseless Indians, <coughs> uh, corrupt government officials exploiting Indians. Uh, uh, shouldn't some comment be made uh, on our role via be the Indians? <coughs> Well, I parallel that in some instances, the melee massacre in Vietnam. I think that, uh, first of all, I'd like to say I'm not Jane Fonda, uh, physically or in terms of her attitudes on this question. I think you've got to read these things. I, I would agree with you that, th that the record is, from our 20th century viewpoint, a, a rather sorry and unfortunate one. But I think you've got to look at this whole thing within the context of the times and uh, not try to read back uh, 20th century values into 19th century experiences. Uh, I have this feeling many, very often myself, but I, I just think in all fairness to the situation, uh, you, you can't make these judgments uh, no matter uh, how much you would like to. I, ju I just don't think it's, it's, uh, it's good uh, objective, if there is such a thing, objective historical judgment. Uh, Although I would, I would agree that uh, a great deal of, of America's, uh, the United States' uh, record of dealing with his Indians is, is a sorry one. It's probably no sorrier than some other aspects of our history that uh, arouse less uh, excitement and enthusiasm because they don't deal with, uh, with uh, minority groups. Thank you very much, Harry.